0: Why, hello there. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan with pureandsimplebible.com and I am so thankful to have you listening again. It's been a while. One week turned into two, turned into eight since I have put out a new episode and I do apologize. I really wanted to have this to be something where I could put something out every week. But i tell you what, all the school that I have had to do this semester has really made it challenging to do the videos and the podcasting, so I had to put it aside for a little bit. And now, thankfully, I'm picking it back up. I'm thankful for those that have uh, encouraged me and have asked about the podcast. And here we are. We're back. And we're going to continue on with trying to get out some regular content that's evergreen and able to be used for Bible study. Now, when you think about the book of Haggai, What do you think about? For a lot of us, maybe we know that's a a book of prophecy in the Old Testament. But beyond that, maybe there's a verse or two or there's a thought here or there. But there is a young man named Bryce Whitaker from out in the great state of California who happened to be in the Dallas area a couple months ago. And we got together and recorded this podcast. And thankfully, I've had time to edit it. and Now I want to share it with you. And so I want you to listen to what Bryce has studied in the book of Haggai and how it's meaningful for your life and mine, no matter where we are in our walk with Jesus Christ. So everybody buckle up and let's jump in to this great book of Haggai together. How about you take a minute and tell us who you are for those who maybe don't know you. Yeah, my name is Bryce Whitaker, I worship at the Yuba City Congregation
1: in Northern California. Uh, just like you, I grew up in the church. had I have great parents um, who raised me in the faith. My mom, she's always taking care of other people. Always been a great example of just helping other people out. And uh, my dad is a marriage and family therapist. He's been able to help out a lot of people in the church. And um, so my parents are just always there for an example. We mm-hmm. had read our Bibles together after dinner every night. Mm-hmm. Um, Sunday mornings, always um, listen to, to religious music in the car on the way just to on the way to church to get our minds right. Uh, so I've always just had had great examples around me, and uh, I'm I'm a college student right now, getting
0: my or going for a degree in business finance, um, in the but, great state of California. Great state of California, born right. and raised. So, you know, uh, it we could go down this trek probably pretty far, but uh, I remember growing up in in our home. You said you used to listen to religious music on the way to services to get your mind going. Uh, we did the same, but. We we also, my, my parents would blast it uh like when it was time to wake up in the morning on Sunday. And so like <laughs> they'd take acapella and just, you know, turn it up. And uh, so we do that, too. Now, you know, that's the 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 morning wake up call is they're going to get some blasting of uh, the sound waves coming from the living room just blows them out of their bed on Sunday <laughs> morning. So so you've read a study about the prophet Haggai and you spoke at Valley Parkway last wednesday yep right and you preached a study there so i asked you to come and share it with the greater psb audience and i'm curious if uh let's maybe pretend i don't know anything about haggai um what sort of hook would you use to to get me motivated for this study
1: yeah so in the time of haggai god's people were really living through a period of nation-shaking events And they were kind of struggling to adjust in a godly way with everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. They were coming home from a 70-year exile into a land that had been destroyed, and they had a lot of challenges in adjusting to their new normal, so to speak. Okay. With this book, for me, it really just kind of helps me view adjusting to things in a godly
0: way. Mm. If you could master that and then write that in a book, you could sell a million copies, Adjusting Things in a Godly Way. But... Looks like Haggai beat you to the punch. A little bit. So you also say that this is a, it doesn't just apply to those people. And I think that's part of the hook, right? That this is for all believers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Romans
1: 15 and verse four, it gets brought up when looking at the Old Testament
0: a lot. Uh, Would you mind reading it? Sure. Let's see. Romans 15 verse four, Paul says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might
1: have hope. So the same writer Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about using examples, specifically there, I think, bad examples. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the Old Testament is there for us to learn from, from people's victories, but also their mistakes. And so for this book in Haggai, it really deals with issues that are, that are close to home for us. It deals with procrastination, misplaced priorities, complacency, dealing with mistakes and discouragement. Those are all things
0: that I think we've all faced at least a little bit uh, in the last year. Oh, absolutely. And you, you know, I, I kind of had a question about how do we connect as New Testament followers to this Old Testament concept. But I think in what you just said, you've you've given me several ways where I can think about procrastination or um, dealing with discouragement or adversity. And I think, yeah, that's something I, I go through. And your suggestion that that the people in Haggai's time were going through the exact same thing, suddenly as a Christian, it makes the Old Testament seem more color than just black and white, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Like we're trying to do, we're we're looking at it through new eyes. Now, you have a very specific personal um, example of how you've kind of gone through something recently that has motivated you to look at this book in a special way, right?
1: Yeah, so my my close cousin, uh, Zach Whitaker, he just passed away a couple months ago. Um, and just from personal experience, uh, the encouragement in this book really is real, and it can have an impact on your life. Mm. Uh, that how God encourages these people who are who are down and out,
0: um, it's really powerful. And I hope to to kind of convey that in some small way as we as we look at this. If I'm a believer and listening to this podcast right now, hopefully I'm motivated. You know, uh, the things you've just said, you've you've given personal examples. You you've tried to tie it to all believers today. So hopefully we're we're looking at Haggai. And uh, even if we've never read it before, maybe we're going to look at it differently now. That's, that's what my hope is. People are going to be interested in the study. And so um, where do we begin? I mean, is there some sort of context or background? You know, should we paint a picture of what's going on for people so that maybe they can kind of appreciate a little bit more?
1: Yeah. So when you're looking at the Minor Prophets, Historical context is everything because everyone deals with a little bit different situation, a different captivity, whether it's before or after or during. Right. Um, and so I think for Haggai, just doing a little crash course, so to speak, of the Old Testament uh, up until this point to kind of get us up to speed would be super helpful. Okay. And I think starting with Abraham specifically. Oh, um, wow.
0: We're going all the way back to Genesis. Yeah. So going okay. back
1: to to the promises made to, to Abraham by God, um, the one we're going to be looking at from Genesis 22 Is when God makes the promise that from Abraham's seed all nations would be blessed right okay and this is we know this from a New Testament perspective uh, that that's a a prophecy about Christ Uh the Messiah who's going to come into the world and be a blessing to everybody and so after this specific promise the entire Old Testament follows the story of Abraham's family Mm -hmm. for a few thousand years it really dials in on this group and so these people would come to be known as Israelites they're named after Abraham's grandson so the part of history for the Israelites that we need to understand uh, for Haggai, it comes a few thousand years after Abraham. So we went really far back. Yeah. <laughs> and so so by Haggai's day, the Israelites, they've already grown and become a nation. Uh, the period we're going to be looking at is way after Moses led them out of Egypt. Okay. Way after they conquered the promised land and right. way after David and
0: Solomon have been kings. Okay. Yeah. You're giving me, if, I, if I'm making this visual timeline in my mind, yeah, those big figures, Abraham and then Moses and then David. Are, are we still in a united kingdom? Is it split? Like, where, where's Haggai at in, in that part of their history? So, by Haggai's day, the kingdom is, has divided. Okay. And so, we're in the, the
1: time period that, that we, know, we know is the divided kingdom period. And so, looking at the, the two specific groups, you have the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. Right. And the northern nation, they only had wicked kings who weren't, wouldn't follow God. Right. And so, God had sent prophets to, to warn them to turn back to Him. Uh, but they were continually unfaithful uh-huh. and so God allowed them to be conquered uh, by the nation of Syria. Right. And so they by the by Haggai's day they've
0: already been conquered and so they're not the people that we're going to be talking about. Okay, so then 10 tribes are gone. It's not it's not looking good. Like uh, I think I know where you're going just by the, the way Old Testament history goes. But we've gone from this beautiful promise to this uh you know powerful people united kingdom but then it divides and then the majority of them are gone and now we're down in Judah but but we're not there yet, right? There's even more history before we get to Haggai. Yeah,
1: we still have a little bit a little bit more to go before we get to him. Spoiler, it's not good. <laughs> yeah, so Judah, they had a mix of good and bad kings, but even with that mix of good, the people still ultimately fell away from God, Right. like the northern tribes had. And so God sent prophets to them too, telling them to turn from their sins, but the people just didn't listen. And those prophets gave a message that God was going to give them into captivity as well.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. But he didn't just leave them with that going, with that over their head. I need to reset.
0: (laughs) There you go. You got it.
1: But he didn't just leave them with that thought of captivity looming over their head. He also had the prophets tell them of their deliverance from that future captivity that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And as the prophet said would happen, God let the nation Babylon defeat Judah, and they destroyed Jerusalem and the beautiful temple that Solomon had built, and they carried away most of the people into exile in Babylon. You know, this is the period that we get the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. It's during this captivity.
0: Okay, so Haggai's after that too. Yeah. So that means we've gone through the the nation of Israel's history from their inception to their conquest to their glorified kingdom to their divided kingdom to their destruction. And then now we're post-destruction, right? So they're going to come back 70 years later to the ruins of Jerusalem. Is that where we're at? Yeah, yeah. And so Jeremiah had predicted that this exile was going to be 70 years,
1: Uh, and finally the king of the Persians named Cyrus defeated Babylon, and under instruction by God, he lets those of Judah go free who wanted to return home, and he sends them off with resources and instructions to rebuild God's temple uh, that the Babylonians had destroyed.
0: Now, some people might think that, that we're just doing a history lesson, and that, you know, oh, you know, fast forward through the history lesson, but... I think it's important to pause here, and and you talk about this in your notes, that God had a plan. That This was actually, all of this was leading up to things, and this is part of his plan. It wasn't just random history that we need to learn about, you know, dates and figures and names and such. So tell us about that for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the the history that's super important is that
1: it proves the truth Mm -hmm. of the Old Testament. Right. And there's something pretty crazy here. Um, Remember, we had talked about that God had told Judah about their deliverance before the captivity even started. If you flip over to Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, before Judah even went into exile, God foretold that a man named Cyrus was going to be used as his instrument to subdue nations and free the people. Mm -hmm. If you're doing some very rough math, you can see that Isaiah said this sometime before the captivity started. Right. And then the captivity lasted 70 years. And so that means that God called Cyrus by name, possibly while his grandparents were still kids.
0: The Cyrus parents
1: weren't even a thought when Isaiah predicted this.
0: And they're in in a different time and culture or different culture location, too. So it's not like they would have uh, had access to this prophecy and then be like, okay, I need to remember to name my grandkids Cyrus. You know, they're they're off somewhere else. Yeah, So there's no connection as far as that people group and then God's people. Correct? Yeah. Okay. It'd be like someone telling you the name of your great grandkid. Right. Or it'd be like somebody telling the name of the great grandkid of, uh, you know, in another nation like Mexico or Honduras that's gonna come invade Texas and <laughs> yeah, liberate us or something. You know, something crazy like that. That's wild. What What a great proof or, you know, confidence builder in the Word of God. So that encourages me. Um. Now y- you also discuss. Ezra. And um, for those who are familiar with the Bible, Ezra is a book, but it's also the name of a person. So maybe could you flesh out this person and how he's connected to Haggai?
1: Yeah. So Ezra's really far apart from Haggai in our physical Bibles, uh, but it's really the history book companion to Haggai. Haggai is a is a character, so to speak, within the book of Ezra.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I wish we had like a Oh, it might be dangerous to go down that path, but I wish we had the ability to move books in our Bible, you know, so you could put Ezra and Haggai together, because that probably makes a whole lot more sense chronologically if you could read them together, yeah, instead of them being separated by, what, like 400 pages or something. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about Ezra.
1: So Ezra's beginning chapters, they give the narrative of the people being sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and they're being led by a man named Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. And for a time, things were going great, that this remnant or part of the nation, they were returning to their land, they rebuilt the altar to praise and worship God, and to be able to offer their daily sacrifices again. They were keeping the feast days of the law, and they Mm -hmm. they even laid the foundation of the temple again. We're told all this in the first three chapters.
0: Now, like most people who experience some sort of a, a revival of their faith, the people in Ezra's days start out really strong, but then discouragement or life, whatever you want to call it, kind of sets in. So I think about when people get baptized and they're kind of on fire, right? But then reality hits. And so whether it's six months or two years or five years later, their faith is uh, maybe going through something that wasn't there when they started. And that's the same with these people in Ezra's day, right? Yeah, it's the exact
1: same thing. They used to sing psalms about the glory of their great city, and now its temple was in ruins. And we see the temple before it was destroyed by Babylon, It was magnificent. I
0: want to pause you right there. For those who are maybe unfamiliar with the narrative, they came back from captivity. They had rebuilt the altar. Yeah. They were making sacrifices, but the temple was still in ruins. Hmm. That's an interesting observation. Keep going.
1: Yeah, so this temple that that was destroyed, it was the beautiful temple that Solomon had built, and it was absolutely irreplaceable. That these people, especially coming home from an exile, even with all the, the resources they had been given, they just didn't have the means to rebuild it to the level that Solomon had in the first place. Right. And so after they laid the foundation of the new temple, we read in Ezra 3 and verse 12 that some people cried out and praise to the Lord and were so excited at the progress that was being made. But some of the older people who had seen the first temple before it was destroyed, they were sad and they cried out and, and they wept.
0: Wow. Those guys would have been really old, too, because if they're gone 70 years and they could remember the old temple, they're probably like 80 Yeah. You know, these guys are going to be 80, 85, 90. Um, But that's that's impressive that this noise, it sounds similar, but if you're looking around, you could see the difference between those who are excited and those who are are weeping over it. Keep going. Tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah, so what these people had become discouraged with is that from an
1: outer beauty perspective, what they were going to build wasn't going to be anywhere near as amazing what Solomon had built. And so they really let that get to them. And even though that was true, that what – they what they were going to build wasn't going to be as good as solomon's temple what they lost sight of was that god was still going to be with them Mm -hmm. just the same in this new temple right that it wouldn't have the ark of the covenant and so it wouldn't be exactly the same but god was still going to be with them Mm
0: -hmm. and god is greater than the house that he dwells in there's this is not the purpose of your study but there's so many good lessons from that i think about in the new testament acts chapter 17 when paul is in athens and he tells these pagans, he's going around and, you know, we have the ruins of, of their temples that you can go to Greece and look at today. And you can imagine how marvelous the splendor was for those temples. Um, and so imagine Paul seeing them in their splendor. And he then turns to that group and he says, the God of heaven does not dwell in temples made with hands. And so even though Solomon's, I mean, God, God, he he did bless this temple. It wasn't necessary for him to dwell in, is the point I'm making, that, that God is bigger than dwelling in a temple. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. And so it's good to be reminded that today, you know, he doesn't dwell in the best-looking building and then not dwell in the worst-looking one, right? So, like, Christians can meet, in a home, or they could meet under a tree, or they could meet, uh, you know, in a fancy building, and God's presence would be blessing them. So that's an encouragement for me that that these people, um, they were struggling with it. How sometimes people in our culture struggle with that very same thing. Sorry, that's kind of a tangent.
1: Oh no, and, you know, Jesus, <laughs> he preached to to the poor, not to the the rich and flashy people. The the, the ones that he went to weren't the ones that were that were upscale and flaunting everything that they had you mm-hmm. went to the humble
0: and it's funny because you know the the temple would have served the same purpose and so their tears are really for expectations that are not met but it's not for a lack of what god is capable of doing god could still atone for the sins of his nation or rather that the priest could uh, atone and god would forgive they could still come and praise him it just looked different And so there, yeah, I'm starting to, I'm, I'm assuming as we get into Haggai, because you know, our audience is like, okay, you're talking about Ezra and all these other things. I'm sure we're going to get there soon, but as we're getting to Haggai, this idea of unfulfilled expectations or of, of not, um, maybe finishing the work that needs to be done is really starting to take shape. So, and I know we're not quite there yet though, right? There's, there's just a bit more. Yeah. There's one more thing that, that happens. It's super important setting up to Haggai.
1: And that's as you keep reading in Ezra, you'll find that the enemies of Judah did absolutely everything in their power to stop the work of rebuilding the temple. You know, finally, we read that that the people that were opposed to to Judah, they wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes to shut down the rebuild. Mm -hmm. And it was successful that the king wrote a letter back telling them to to shut down. And we see the result of that letter at the very end of of Ezra, chapter four.
0: Would you mind reading verse 24? Sure. Thus the work. Of the house of God which is at Jerusalem ceased and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia
1: so we're finally at Haggai and because of their discouragement and the outside interference of these people they neglected to build God's temple for 15 years now before Haggai is finally chosen as God's man to deliver his message and motivate
0: the people to get to work so 15 years have passed between when they started and then they were, you know, they paused work and they just hadn't picked it back up. So Haggai's going to come onto the scene and c- try to remotivate them, right?
1: Yeah. Okay. So picking up in Haggai, he's speaking to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the leaders of the people. And we'll start with verses two through five. Okay. There it says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore,
0: thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It seems like God, you know, that phrase, consider your ways. It's That's something I would tell my kids whenever they have already not obeyed a command. They are in the action of continuing to disobey a command like, It's coming, you know, dad's wrath is coming. I would say something, not consider your ways, but the spirit of that, consider your ways. And it seems like God is doing something similar here. Perhaps he's accusing them or he's trying to shake them back awake. Uh, Can you take some time and explain what we've just read and and help us understand it?
1: Yeah, so God's making two accusations here against the people uh, in verses 2 through 4. And the first thing is procrastination. Remember, these people had quit working on God's temple, his house, for 15 years. And the temple was essentially the emblem of God's presence with the people. And they were still saying, eh, it's not time to build that yet. Mm. They were returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple was literally the work they were sent back to do. And they were mm-hmm. given the resources to do it. Mm-hmm. But after some roadblocks, they had quit. And now they just kept putting it off and putting it off, just kept kicking the can down the road. Right.
0: Now that you said two, so there was procrastination. What was the second one?
1: Yeah, the second one is misplaced priorities. Okay. And so in verse four, Haggai asked them, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? And it wasn't the fact that they were building themselves houses. They God knew that, that they needed a place to live. But the problem was that for 15 years, they had neglected their duty to God to rebuild and they weren't just setting up tents or building normal shelters. They were taking their time, using their resources to build nice and comfortable and luxurious houses. And realistically, they were probably using the resources that were supposed to go to the temple.
0: Right. So procrastination and priorities, misplaced priorities. Um, I could probably highlight how guilty I can be at times of procrastination. I'm sure you can, too, oh, and too. our listeners as well. Why, you know, obviously there's times when we do need to maybe uh, process or decompress at the end of the day, but there's a difference between that and then the procrastination here in Haggai or that we could be guilty of as well. Why is procrastination so potentially dangerous? I think we can see why it's dangerous in what happened once
1: they stopped working. You know, they stopped building and they got complacent and they stayed not working. You know, science tells us that an object in motion tends to stay in motion and an object at rest tends to stay at rest. Mm. And spiritually, these people stayed at rest. Right. They were letting themselves be satisfied to worship among the ruins of God's house while they were
0: building up nice ones for themselves. It's really easy, you know, historically, we look at them and think, oh, how little faith they had. They had all the supplies for the temple. They had everything kind of ready to go, and they still couldn't do it. What about us? What are some ways that you've thought about the Christian audience who's reading this that we also could be guilty of procrastination.
1: Yeah, there's just so many things for us that sometimes we know we need to do that we just put off. And I know I'm guilty of that probably more than most people. Um, But there's there's things like just reading the Bible, Mm -hmm. praying more, starting a Bible study, reaching out to someone just with an encouraging message. I know for so many people during this pandemic, just getting a text that someone was thinking about you or sharing a Bible verse or a thought has just meant so much to so many people. Um, visiting the elderly, COVID permitting, of course. Uh, I know family worship out here is a big thing. And so there's just so many things that we can just fill in the blank. I'm sure everybody has something um, that we can just stop putting off and to, to really start doing.
0: Let me ask you a question. It's not in the notes. Why do you think we do
1: that? Why do you think we put it off? So I'm reading a book with a buddy of mine, and it's talking about how we view life. And one of the things that it brings up is that a lot of times we live life for ourselves and that everything we do is self centered and focused. Right. And so, what these people were doing, the reason they weren't working is because they were focused on themselves uh-huh. and they weren't focused on God. Okay. You know, Colossians says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth.
0: Yes. I like that. What's the name of the book you're reading? Living Life Backwards. Living Life Backwards. David Gibson. Okay. For those interested, there's the book. Is that, does it get your recommendation? Are you. I'm about halfway through, so you know, so far. Okay, okay. So take that with a the grain of salt halfway through. Okay, so living for self, it seems like we're always busy. And so we have these things we're supposed to do. You know, we need to grow spiritually, read, we need to pray, we need to spend time with each other, we need to serve others, but we get busy. It makes me wonder about them. You know, what? Uh, probably human nature is the same across culture, and so these people were just getting busy. They were thinking about self. They were dwelling, in verse 4, in their paneled houses while the Lord's house lies in ruins. So that's good. That's good to see uh, the motivation for Haggai writing it for procrastination. But what about priorities? That was the second one you mentioned. So for those listening, um, God's second accusation was about misplaced priorities. And I guess that's kind of similar to what we've just talked about with being self-centered, you know, your priorities are on self, but instead of just talking about uh, misplaced priorities, you actually compare it to a time when they have their priorities, I guess, right, or, or going down the right path. So could you maybe contrast this time, and I think it's 2 Samuel 7, with what we see in Haggai? Yeah, so
1: in Second Samuel 7 and a parallel in 1 Chronicles 17, we can compare these people's attitude about God's house with David's. You know, when God had given David victory over over all of his enemies, he tells Nathan the prophet that it was bothering his spirit that the Ark of the Covenant, where God dwelt among the people, was in a tent while he was in a nice cedar wooden house. You know, these people Haggai's dealing with are the polar opposite. God's finally given them freedom as well from their captors, maybe even in a bigger scale than than David. Right. and their last thought is building God's house back up, that they've mm-hmm. totally become desensitized to the fact that God's house is still in rubble. Would you mind reading Second Chronicles
0: 7, 1 and 2? Yeah. Second Chronicles 7, 1 and 2 says, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house.
1: Yeah, and in verse 12 there, God himself says that he had chosen that house as a house of sacrifice. And so this place should have meant something to these people. That was, God's
0: glory was physically there, but instead they just put off rebuilding it and just didn't care. Right, and and so this concept of showing the priorities uh, based on their actions of neglect, you, you take it into the New Testament, right? Tell yeah. us about that in Matthew 7.
1: Yeah, so in Matthew 7, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says twice that people are going to be known by their fruits. You know, Haggai's people had chosen to build their things first instead of God's, and it showed that God just wasn't their focus. Their only fruit was some new houses for themselves. What we can see from these people is the perfect example of it being easy to feel connected to God when you need him for something, but once that storm passes and the seas are calm, it can be easy to forget him. That God had just released these people from captivity, And within two decades, they'd already neglected
0: the work that he gave them to do in the first place. It's terrifying because it's it's so common. Um, I think about that poor generation of, of the Israelites who left Egypt and how they were out in the desert whining about not having leeks and watermelons and fish. Yeah. And it's like you literally were in chains. And the moment you get out of the chains, you want to go back to the chains. So this seems to be a pretty common theme about forgetting where you came from and Wanting to go back, it's almost like, and maybe this is the 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 intent, um, in the book of Romans, uh, talking about being slaves to sin or to slaves, slaves to righteousness. And the idea is that it's amazing how when we are liberated from sin and we become a servant or slave or bondservant, whatever you want to call it, of God, the flesh still wants to go back into slavery.
1: Yeah, and for, for us, one thing that kind of comes to my mind with all this is that if they, if them and the, the people that came out of Egypt could fall away that quick, who had seen the wonders of God, who had seen all the miracles in Egypt or, or been freed from a, a captivity, if they could fall
0: away within two decades, I think we're even more susceptible to that. Right. There is something, I agree, there is something very compelling about the fact that they could see it and then fall away. It almost makes me shudder. I will say this, though. I think this gives me hope. Uh, Romans 8, verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And I used to, you know, when I was a teen, I used to think, man, if I could have just been a, a Jew in the Old Testament and have seen that, it' would be so much easier to obey God. I'm not convinced. so uh, maybe I'm taking the other side in in us thinking about uh who has it, who had it worse, but it seems like sight kind of crumbles faith on on some persons. obviously there's people in the Old Testament who you know, they would either speak with God or interact with them, and they were very, very faithful. But I think one of the privileges of not seeing is like what Romans 8 talks about, who hopes for what they already see, hope that is unseen, is where hope lies. And so I think the encouragement that I find is that I may have not seen, but I can still have faith, and that that faith is actually greater than sight.
1: One thing that kind of, this can stay in or or not, but one thing that kind of struck me about these people is, yes, they had seen God release them from a captivity uh, but so often we look at, at these Israelites like, man, look what God did for you and in Egypt. It's like, that was their great, 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 great grandfather. <laughs> right. And so these people's faith, yes, they had seen uh, seen some of God's work, and yes, they had the prophets. Um, but they learned just like me and you did, uh-huh. that they learned from their fathers who learned from their fathers and their fathers before them. Uh-huh. And so their faith was a little bit different than those from the original group coming out of Egypt. It's a great and
0: point. That kind of helps close the gap a little bit for me with between us and these people. You know, the times that, that God speaks are, you know, if you take the the whole Bible timeline, again, you kind of stretch it out. So if you're visualizing this linear timeline, the blips where God actually communicates or interacts or does something miraculous is very small. Like the, this is a Jonathan Edwards statistic, but like 99.9999999% of people have never experienced the miraculous you know, as far as seeing it. So, yeah, these people in Haggai's day, God may be miraculously or, or, or inspiring through the Holy Spirit, Haggai, to write this message down. But the way they're experiencing God is very much like we would be in that they would come to a place and the spokesman would be speaking on God's behalf the way a preacher would speak on God's behalf. And so, yeah, their, their release from uh bondage their return to Jerusalem their work none of that's happening miraculously they were responsible for their faith in it so I like this conversation about faith and sight and stuff we have a lot more in common with these people than you might first think about it right
1: yeah that just thinking about that with how they had learned about their faith it it really closed the gap for me just between us and these people that we're really no different from
0: them Mm -hmm. I like that I like feeling that connection with people from a long time ago, we've uh, gone down to several different tangents on this topic. Why don't we, we like tighten it up with where do misplaced priorities take us? To close out this point, what
1: having misplaced priorities led to for these people, it was really a dangerous spiritual place that they got complacent and they got spiritually indifferent. That they just didn't care anymore. Mm-hmm. That they had lost their overall focus on God and they just got stagnant doing the work. And it led to a wasted 15 years. You know, in Matthew 5, Jesus preaches that as followers of God, we need to shine our lights. And these people hid theirs for so long. They let their discouragement, some outside resistance, and complacency weigh them down. And they just stopped caring. And that indifference
0: led to a wasted 15 years that they would never get back. You know, 15 years is a long time for anyone. You know, I don't think there's anyone who would volunteer to give up 15 years of their life. But for you, I like your, your statistic uh just for you as a person. So you wanna share that with the audience?
1: Yeah, so I'm only twenty years old. And so they they procrastinated for seventy five percent of my lifetime. I know I, I never name names here, but you know, some people are a little older and so fifteen <laughs> years might not seem like a lot. Uh but for me it definitely does. That's that's most of my life. I'm always careful not to to look at specific people in the crowd when I
0: mention this. <laughs> so in this last part of uh this section, you kind of change the, the topic to self-reflection a little bit. Can you share that with us? Yeah. So God says
1: to, to close this out through Haggai, consider your ways, you know, acknowledging our problems are the first step to getting on track uh, when we have them. And so what God's pleading them to do is to self-reflect mm. um, that the Hebrew word for consider here, it literally means to set your heart upon. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but he's asking them to give a sincere and careful look at what they have been doing.
0: Well, well, well. We're going to end it right there with a cliffhanger. And I know that sometimes whenever you get going in a conversation like this, it's really hard to stop. But I can't help myself from spoiling your fun in listening to a great Bible study. And you're going to have to come back next week if you want to hear the conclusion on the book of Haggai. Now, this has been such a fun conversation with Bryce. Bryce, I think, is 20 or 21 years old. I can't remember uh, exactly. I may have asked him that in the podcast, but I'm recording this part uh, two months later. So Anyway, Bryce is a young man. He's about 15 or 16 years younger than me. And I'll tell you this. I don't think at the age of 20 I could have studied the book of Haggai as extensively and as maturely As Bryce has studied it. So I'm so thankful for his diligence, for his study. He's a great young man of faith, and I hope that you've been enjoying listening to this conversation. But you're going to have to come back next week if you want to get the exciting conclusion and jumping into the rest of the book with us. So until then, you can go to the website. There's a lot of information there. There's study books, there's booklets, there's videos, and there's all the library of this podcast. And it's all available for you to download and use absolutely free. Until then, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. We're willing to see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a
1: story that is true
0: About a judge by the name of Gideon He was a man like me and you well, yeah.